Genre-defying composer Matt Quayle talks to us about scoring some of TV's biggest shows, from his Emmy Award-winning electronic score for Mr. Robot to the old-school Hollywood feel of FX's feud, Betty and Joan. This is Pop Culture Confidential. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Prolific TV creator Ryan Murphy is back with one of the most anticipated shows of the season, American Crime Story, The Assassination of Gianni Versace. That premieres in the U.S. this week on FX and stars, among others, Penelope Cruz. One of Murphy's very frequent collaborators on this new show as well is composer Mac Quayle. Mr. Quayle's unique and many times unconventional sound has made him the go-to composer for some of the biggest TV creators and filmmakers working now. Mac's music career started early, singing in the church choir back home in Virginia. He joined the school's marching band and then began playing new wave and punk in different local groups. Later, he moved to New York and found huge success as a producer and music remixer. He worked on 40 number one Billboard dance hits with some of the biggest names in the music business. He created music for Madonna, Whitney Houston, Britney Spears, Beyonce, Sting, and many more. Then he headed to Los Angeles to pursue work composing for film and TV. He worked as an additional composer for Cliff Martinez on, among others, films like Drive and Spring Breakers. In 2015, he landed the job to compose the score for Sam Esmail's new series, Mr. Robot. This score would lead to an Emmy. also has a close collaboration with TV creator and showrunner Ryan Murphy. Mac has scored American Horror Story since season four and The People vs. O.J. Simpson starring John Travolta and Sarah Paulson. In 2017, Mac Quayle received two Emmy nominations for his main title and score for the music in Murphy's hit series Feud, Betty and Jones starring Jessica Lange and Susan Sarandon. Quayle has written music for over 40 films and television shows, so I'm very happy to talk to him about his process here today. I started by asking him, when he himself goes to the movies, is he always thinking about the music, the score? Well, you know, it's, it's, um, it's an interesting thing when, when you start to learn about the filmmaking process. Um, I mean, obviously music is just one part of it, um, but the editing, the camera work, the lighting, like once each of those parts of the process, when you learn about them, it can be a little difficult to not see that what's happening Mm -hmm. and to not be like, Oh, okay. I see how they edited that there. And now it's, you know, or or the way, the way that is lit or that, that particular camera angle, um, it takes a little bit of the mystery out of it, but Great filmmaking uh, can kind of transcend all of that because you just get lost in the story. 
And um, the, the same can happen for me when I'm watching and, and music just sort of blends into the background and I'm, I'm not really paying attention to it um, because I'm so captivated by what, you know, this journey the filmmaker is taking me on. Uh, exceptions to that would be if I feel if the music sticks out in a way that um, I don't think is working. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so, so like a, a someone's choice for 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 the music, um, say I disagree with, and I think it's, it's it's totally interrupting the film and not doing what what I would do. That can jump out at me and and make me notice the music because that's so interesting. Because sometimes. It, too much can be amazing. You, I mean, you could just think about, wow, this is like too much. It's like a wall of music, but that's great. That adds something. And sometimes it's like, I don't want you to tell me everything I'm feeling at every moment. <laughs> it's really a, a magic how you get that right. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And um, so the other, the other side to, to it for me is when, if there's something really great musically, and there's maybe a moment in the story where, where the story takes a breath and I can just enjoy the music and, and I, I'll think, wow, that's what a great cue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It sounds, that sounds fantastic. Um, and so it's either, if it's bad, I'll notice it. <laughs> if it's really great, <laughs> I'll notice it. And then if it's just working and doing its job, it kind of fades into the, fades into the background. Okay, I'd, I'd like to go back a little bit in your career. Um, why did you leave New York, where you were a successful producer, remixing others, and move to Los Angeles? In the early 2000s, the music industry started to have some pretty significant changes. Um, you know, Napster had happened in the very end of the 90s. Uh, piracy was starting to be rampant. Um, and the, for the first time, sales were going down, and <clears throat> the work that we were doing with the with the record labels uh, started to dry up. Mm-hmm. Everything was shifting, and in two thousand three, uh, it was just really starting to change. And I thought it's it's like time to do something to do something else. And so I set my sights on on moving to California with the kind of a vague idea of, of getting into scoring. And in the beginning of 2004, moved, moved out here to, to see what, what might be possible. Well, you were very sort of smart ahead of your time to be thinking like this, right? There must have been many people left <laughs> not sort of realizing what was going on in the industry, I can imagine. Um, yeah, I, th- I think so. And I, and I think it was a something that people started to do. You saw a lot of people leave the music industry and, and come over and to, you know, to try their, their, their fate in, in the scoring. But there are a lot of people still doing remixing, but I'm, I'm sure they're sort of maybe, maybe like amateurs, or I mean, are there people on you? Who, who's doing that now? I mean, there definitely is. Remixing is still happening. It never went away. Um, you know, one of the... I, I'm sure there's there's money being paid for it now. There's there's budgets um, for some of the really biggest biggest DJs or, or whatever that are doing remixes. They're they're probably getting paid well. And my guess is the rest of the people doing remixes are either not getting paid or they're getting paid very little. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the shifts that was already happening during this uh, early 2000s time period was the 
you know, the advancement of technology had made it so that pretty much anyone with a laptop right. and like one piece of software could potentially do a remix. It didn't mean it would be good. It might be. But um, so all of a sudden, there's just a flood of people wanting to do remixes, very hungry, mm-hmm. very excited to do it. And the record label started thinking, hmm, wow, why should we pay all these professionals a lot of money to do the remixes? Why don't we give it out to 10 young guys and tell them to, to send us a remix? And if we like one of them, we'll give them a, you know, a little money. For right, it. right, right. Well, <laughs> so, <laughs> that changes things, right? <laughs> yeah, it, um, do, it does. When you start composing for something like Mr. Robot, do you first have a conversation with Sam Ismail? Do you first see footage? How does this begin? Well, yes, it does. It all starts with a conversation. And in fact, you know, the beginning of that, uh, my relationship with Sam and working on the show, it all it began with a meeting. We, we met. I watched the pilot episode. Oh, so he had that already. It's, they had shot the pilot. And this was back in... I guess January of 2015, so three three years ago, and um, we we sat down and, and we talked about uh, we talked about the the pilot and Sam felt very strongly that the sound of the show should be very electronic, which I which I agreed. I thought it I thought it would really work, and <clears throat> based on those conversations, uh, then I then I start writing music in my studio and sending him music to hear and you know have his input on mm-hmm. whether he he loves what I do the first the first version or he has suggestions for changes and that process has pretty much stayed throughout you know we've done 3 seasons of the show now and that process is you know pretty pretty much intact we, we there's a conversation i write music you know he uh <clears throat> He gives feedback, and then um, we, we work on it until it's right and, and move on to the next episode. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm just – I think you what you really do in Mr. Robot, Lisa, is you're really sort of scoring what's in Elliot's head, creating sort of his feelings and his tension um, is how I'm feeling when I'm, I'm watching it. How, how would you say that you create that? I mean, really, specifically, what instrumentation and, and, and how are you thinking? Well, you know, it's funny because when I, when I started the show, um, that wasn't what I was aware that I was doing, that I was scoring what was happening in, in Elliot's subconscious. It, it, took, it took like sort of halfway into the second season when I realized, oh, that's really what I'm doing here. Oh, really? <laughs> and, I, you know, I guess, I guess it, it just sort of happened – by my doing, you know, like what feels, what felt right and, and just kind of following my instincts. And out of that came the fact that really I was scoring what was happening in his head. So, um, if you, you've watched the show, you know that a lot that's going on in his head, it's, it's quite dark. It's quite, uh, paranoid, Mm -hmm. a lot of tension, anxiety, um, a lot of bizarre things happening, and so the sounds that I had found found myself using were all sounds that would evoke those types of you know those types of feelings. 
what are those sounds specifically, if you're able to explain? Well, as I said, the sound of the show in general is very electronic. Mm -hmm. So um, almost certainly in the first season, almost every sound was something generated, you know, by a synthesizer. Mm -hmm. um, and so, <clears throat> you know, I would say things that terms I would use for uh, some of the more tense, unsettling uh, moments, I would, I would call them like dark, atmospheric drones, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> discordant harmonies. Um, in, in some of the more frenetic, uh, really crazy moments with him, uh, more distorted sounds, uh, aggressive, uh, unsettling Mm -hmm. And and you know there's a variety of instruments that I that I use to achieve these you know like as I said mostly electronic mm -hmm. so um, I'm not sure most of them can be labeled in sort of conventional musical terms like oh well this is a guitar sound right, right. or that this is a this is an oboe. It's more like, oh, it's a, it's a, it's a sound created by, electronically by a synthesizer, which doesn't necessarily have uh, a counterpart sort of in the, in the real instrument world. Right. Um, do you work together with a sound designer on a show at all, the composer? Well, we, um, we've, we've done a little collaborating. Mm -hmm. I mean, most of the collaboration sort of happens – without us together in the room. Um, you know, there'll be some sound design, some rough sound design on the version that I get to to work to, the, the version of the video. Right. Um, and so, of course, the, just by the nature of it being there, that's going to influence what I do. Um, and then when I turn the music in and they're on the mix stage doing the final tweaking of everything, the music that's now there is going to affect Him. what he okay. does to sculpt his sounds. Um, so that's kind of an in, you know, indirect method of collaboration. A few times we've actually passed some sounds back and forth. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> there was an episode in, in season one, and uh, this scene down... Um, at kind of in this industrial area by the water and there was like a sound of a pile driver this big machine mm -hmm. um that the sound designer had had uh, put in there and he he gave that sound to me and i took it and i i kind of used it as a big percussion instrument in the music track oh wow and um it was it was fun it worked it worked really well we did something similar in this past season with this uh, long scene on a subway car in New York. Mm -hmm. And he gave me the sound of the train going click-clack over the tracks. And it had a rhythm to it. Right. And so I, I, I took it and, and looped it and, and had it in time. And then I wrote my music on top of it in the same tempo of, as the train click-clacks. And so that's so that was kind of fun. It's, it's subliminal, like yeah, it's, it's yeah. not something. If you don't, if you're not looking for it, you might not notice it, but it's 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 there. I can't. 
killed a woman. Got her right in the heart with a stun gun. I've heard that Esmail he likes his the music sort of louder than other showrunners, like actually louder. <laughs> I mean, he does. <clears throat> he does like it loud. Um, and you know, I've I've read comments online of people saying, "I can't hear the dialogue. It's <laughs> too loud." Um, I was fond of making the joke that you know in season one. You know, the music got so much recognition, and I was so fortunate to to win an Emmy for it that uh, mostly that was because it was so loud. People <laughs> could hear it. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's kind of a, a dream come true for composers. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you can you can talk to any composer out there, and they'll tell you of experiences where they have just sweated over a particular cue mm -hmm. and they've been asked to revise it and revise it and revise it and, and, and just work so hard. And then when they finally see the finished product, you can't even hear it. It's right. like buried so low oh. underneath the dialogue and sound effects. So, um, so it's really nice to, to, to have the music be, to be heard. All right. Right. Now what, another huge collaborator of yours, even now that I is Ryan Murphy. Now, what is his approach, his general approach to scoring his productions? Well, he, um, you know, he's more of a big picture thinker, uh, as, as, at least as far as our interactions go. I mean, he will, um, in initial conversations, just say, how okay this is the direction that we need to go you know this this is the we're going to we're going to mix three different genres of music for this and and i think a harpsichord would be a nice instrument to feature mm -hmm. and then that sets the tone i go and write music again a similar process and send it in and get feedback on it and uh, and revise it if needed until until we have something that we that we like um it's you know it's worked out pretty pretty well. For like for American Horror Story, what would one some of his cues be? Well, um, I mean the the very first season that I worked on with him on American Horror Story was season four Freak Show, mm -hmm. and so you know the idea there was that there would be a sort of twisted carnival circus sound to the music. Um, and, and, and one other description was a, uh, 50s sci-fi strings. Wow. What is this? <laughs> I mean, it's like, like some sort of weird oh, science fiction right. movie from the fifties. Um, and so based on those, you know, those descriptions, then I start writing music and, and we end up defining the, the sound of the show, of, of the season.
Now, feud, Betty and Joan, that seems like quite a departure from, from what you, you have been doing sort of electronically and stuff. How did you start there? Were you looking at composers from the era for inspiration, for example? Or Well, definitely. And um, again, from Ryan came this, you know, I want this, I want this show to sound like Hollywood in the 60s. Um, orchestral, a little bit jazzy, and we we also need to be able to help tell this sad story of these two women, and th- and that was the those were the parameters, and so you know based on that I immersed myself in a, a lot of music from that period, and uh, and began began writing. The first thing I wrote was the main title theme. Oh, which, talk talk about that. What 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 sort of instrumentation were you using there? Well, I mean, essentially it was an orchestral palette. So, you know, with a little bit of a jazzy flavor to it. Um, but, yeah, it was, you know, strings, brass, woodwinds. And, um, and I, I was trying to address all of these, <clears throat> all of these things that Ryan had, you know, all these sort of keywords he'd mentioned. And um, they they basically told me it's going to be one minute long and um, it, you know, it needs to have these characteristics, orchestral sixties, a little bit jazzy and a little bit sad. Mm-hmm. And um, they told me it was also going to be animated, but they had not animated it yet. Okay. So they sent me some stills that were the beginnings of their animation process. And I took, there was 120 stills and I took them and I, I put them in a QuickTime movie file. So I kind of made a slideshow out of oh, them. Oh, okay. So you put them together. Just, just you made so your own animation. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just so I could have something to look at. I mean, there was no, there was no real timing to it or anything, but it was just so that there was something there. And, <clears throat> and then I wrote the piece um, it doesn't always happen, but they loved the first version. And the only, the only note Ryan gave was the ending needs to be more sad. Okay. And, and, and what, when, when it says, so how do you do that? How do you make it more sad? You go into a minor key? Well, I had done, I had key? done a big, well, minor keys definitely are good for sad. Um, I had done a big, a big ending, sort of a big finish. And, um, so first I thought, well, let's not make it big. It'll, instead of going big, it'll, it'll get quiet and become somber. And, um, the, the melody at that point had sort of developed and was, was big with strings and brass. And, and so instead now I pulled it back and I just had a, a clarinet play the final phrase of the melody <clears throat> And um, once that was done, they then animated the visuals to the music, which was definitely a reversal of what normally, normally happens.
What has been your most challenging um, television project? Would you say in your career, and why? Uh, well, I mean, Feud was was quite challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as you mentioned before, it's quite different than the other projects I've worked on. Um, writing uh, '60s orchestral music uh, wasn't exactly something that um, I could say was in my in my tool bag. <laughs> And as much as I loved that music of the era, um, yeah, it was it was it was challenging. Mm-hmm. It was definitely um, took it took more time, and uh, was you know certainly some moments of self doubt as I would get halfway into a into a piece of music and just not know what to do with the rest of it and just be like oh no I can't I can't do this right, well, right. Well, well you know how will I finish it. But um, but we did we did we did we did get through it and you know we're very happy with the results and um, so but yeah I'd say that's been one of the more one of more one of the more challenging projects. What about soundtracks and composers? Um, have you sort of maybe influenced is a big word, but have you during your life really sort of enjoyed or, or looked up to? Probably. I feel like one of the first soundtracks um, I bought was Edward Scissorhands, Danny Elfman, which I just thought was a fantastic, uh, fantastic work. Uh, I think one of his early, one of his early films that just you know showed what kind of an incredible career he was going to have. Um, th- you know, completely, completely different from that. Um, I can remember in uh, in the early 2000s when I was still in New York, um, the music of Cliff Martinez really caught my ear. That you worked with. Which I then mentor, was fortunate really. enough to meet and, and work with. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I watched Traffic and was just blown away by the score. It just didn't sound like anything I'd heard in a film before. And I looked up the composer and said, oh, this guy, Cliff Martinez, I hadn't heard of him. Um, and, you know, shortly after I moved to Los Angeles, I was able to meet him and uh, and ended up, you know, working on, I don't know, 12 films with him over a number of years. Um, so that was quite a nice, you know, kind of a dream situation to find someone that you're a fan of and then and then work with them. Right. So we're just days away from um, your new show, American Crime Story, The Assassination of Gianni Versace, another um, Murphy show. Uh, what can you tell us? Does this have a Miami feel or, or what can you tell us about scoring this one? Well, um, yeah, I'm not sure how much I'm allowed to say to give it away. <laughs> I know they, they like to keep they like to keep a lot of it under wraps. I mean, they have there has been some articles written Press screeners have gone out and whatnot. Yeah, I watched a few trailers too, which of course had music. Um, yeah, the trailers. The trailers have music. It's not. It's not the music from the show. Okay. Um, but uh, you know, we we didn't um, we didn't really go with the Miami feel. Um, I don't. I don't think the story, uh, even though uh, quite a bit of it takes place in Miami. It's not really. It's not really a Miami story. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's this 
fashion icon and this uh, you know deranged serial killer. Um, and it's really, it's really about them and, and their, their lives and how they intertwined, uh, on and off. And, um, so, so yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a Miami sound. Uh, we, we played around with, with merging a, a couple of different genres and, um, I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited about the result. Uh, you know, really curious to see what what people think when the, when it premieres. Well, I can't wait to see it, and and I'm so I really appreciate your time today, and thank you for giving us some insight into the amazing shows that you work on and the music that you make. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for for talking with me. Thank you so much, Mac Quail. And thank you for listening. Now, I have a little favor to ask of you. If you have a moment, please rate the show on iTunes or SoundCloud and spread the word. It really helps others who are interested in the interviews we're doing and the topics to find us. So that would be great. And follow us on Twitter at Pod Pop Culture and Instagram, Pop Culture Confidential. And keep sending responses to the shows. I really appreciate it. It's so much fun. And it also helps me figure out what guests and topics that we can look into going forward. So thank you for that. This show was edited by Tom Hansen, theme music by Carl Boy, produced by Rene Vikander and myself. I'm Christina Jerling Biro. Thank you so much for listening. We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss podcast. Today's couples have to juggle so many things, from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do, so you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to The Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way.